atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government, hug the government, love the government, hug the government, love the government, hug the government. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm political scientist Michael Baranowski. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, attorney and former deputy assistant to President Trump, May Mailman. Hey, Mike. Hey, May. How are you doing this morning? I am good. It is very snowy in Cleveland. Yeah, it's actually pretty snowy here in Cincinnati, which is which is kind of rare. And I got to say, I, I like a little bit of snow, just, you know, not too much. Well, so, you know, we have a lot we want to cover today. We want to talk about the Iowa caucuses and looking forward to uh, New Hampshire, the budget crisis averted, at least for now, the United States and uh, Houthi threat in the Red Sea era, area, the uh, immigration and Ukraine deals that may or may not be and a bunch more. And so why don't we just go ahead and get right to it? We open with the Iowa caucuses and in what is probably made the least surprising development of the last week. Donald Trump cruised to victory, uh, 51% of the vote, right? Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, a distant second and third at 21.2, 19.1, respectively. And that's pretty much what polling has been predicting really for a while now, though DeSantis maybe slightly outperformed his polling average in Iowa. And now, of course, everyone's looking at New Hampshire, holds its primary on Tuesday, January 23rd. And the latest polling has Trump way out in front. He's, uh, I think, somewhere around 45 percent compared to around 33 for Haley and a very meager 5 percent or so for DeSantis. So I thought may we'd start with your take on the result in Iowa and then how you see things shaping up in New Hampshire. So... <laughs> It was a obviously a just Trump dominant performance. I think um, there are two sub stories to that. One is that Trump did very well among older folks, but actually Ron DeSantis did well among um, the sub thirty group. Um, in fact, won them. So that to me is a little bit concerning in that uh, for me, I want a party that seems vibrant, that seems like it's um, <laughs> taking into account and in touch with younger people's concerns Um rather than a sort of boomer-led party, which the whole country has been since Bill Clinton. Um, I think that we've seen a lot of problems, actually, with the leadership and the direction of the country and stagnation since then. Um, but the the... Over 30 group showed up in huge numbers. And so that young vote really didn't count. It didn't push anything over the line. The second story I think that I've noticed is that it was historically low turnout. And so while I think there are a lot of Republicans that are saying, listen, 
you had your chance, either Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, particularly Ron DeSantis, to show that you were an alternative to Trump in Iowa. You were not able to show that. We need to recognize the inevitability and we need to consolidate and move forward. And I think that there is a lot of wisdom in that. Um, but it is hard to stomach. It's hard for a candidate to stomach that when you're basically saying a couple, like several thousand people are going to just decide the primary for the entire country, um, given the extremely low turnout. So while I probably trend toward the first group of people, which is you had your chance, you didn't do it, it's time to consolidate. I get it. It's it's hard to draw to draw conclusions off of what feels like a few human beings. Yeah, which makes maybe New Hampshire even more of a, of a test. And of course, right now we're seeing the sort of old guard Republican establishment, the pre-Trump sort of folks really trying to do everything they can to boost Nikki Haley. And if you look at her numbers over the last few weeks, they actually have gotten a lot better. And you got to think that if Haley can at least get close within maybe 10 percent or or less in single digits of Trump that that gives her a boost because she's really going to need it. Because if you take a look further on, like South Carolina, uh, that's February 3rd and, and Nevada, Haley trails Trump by a lot. And if she gets wiped out in South Carolina, that might just be game over. I, do you think that because right now there's right this long shot Nikki Haley sort of sort of thing. Do you think that's viable at, at this point? I don't. So I'm a person who I never thought that Nikki Haley is viable. And I do not think that she's viable. Like if you look. So obviously primary voters are the people who are on the conservative to very conservative. And Nikki Haley has been making a real push for Democrats and independents to come out and vote in a primary, but they don't have the muscle memory and they don't have the affiliation with the party. It's just so. If, if you look at, you know, who's getting the votes of the conservative to very conservative in Iowa, if you identify it as very conservative, 61 percent went for Trump, 26 percent DeSantis, somewhat conservative, 47 percent Trump, 18 percent DeSantis. Where does Nikki Haley get all of her votes? The people who identify as moderate to liberal, 63 percent of those voters voted for Nikki Haley. So those are not. Republicans, A, oftentimes, and they're not Republican primary voters. So Nikki Haley has an appeal um, as maybe almost a Mitt Romney or a John McCain, which is this middle of the road. I can get things done. I'm fairly competent. And frankly, that has not won for Republicans in recent memory. And conservatives, real conservatives, have no patience. For that, it's like, no, if I'm going to go out there and vote, I'd actually like somebody who's going to one, win and two, do the things that I'd want to do. Nikki Haley doesn't check those boxes. Nikki Haley never had a shot, in my opinion. She was willed on by the media, but it, it was never it was never going to happen. And it's still not going to happen. Yeah, I, I got to wonder, though, and you, I think you're you're right in in the context of the current Republican Party primary electorate. But it's sort of hard for me to see 
Nikki Haley in the same in the same light policy wise as, say, a John McCain or a Mitt Romney. I mean, she seems significantly to the right of both of them on a lot of issues. And so maybe it's just that the Republican electorate has shifted. And so I'm not saying again, I'm not arguing that you're you're wrong on her viability to primary electorate, but it seems like the party is kind of shifted over. I'm wondering what you think about that. You know, I think in general, the the country has gotten older. So in that sense, maybe the country has has gotten more conservative. But I honestly think the or the, the Republican Party was always fairly conservative. I mean, you think about the Tea Party movement and like Ted Cruz shutting down the government to to try and block Obamacare. And now the Republicans have very much accepted Obamacare. I mean, you've got multiple, multiple, multiple candidates coming out in support of Obamacare saying, oh, we just want to like do it a little bit better. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't actually think the, the country is more conservative. I think if anything, um, some of the liberal policies that have been tried, uh, open borders, a little bit more robust government during the COVID era, um, those types of things have turned out to be harmful. You know, power residing in teachers unions. I think people have just seen what sort of a typical, I, I, you know, I do think that the typical Democrat position is to be more open borders than not. The typical Democrat position is to be more in favor of teachers unions than not. And those positions have just in practice failed, um, the, you know, to handouts during the uh, Rescue Plan Act causing major inflation and even a lot of Democrats saying maybe we should have rethought that. So, I don't I don't know if the country has gotten more conservative. I just think the patience maybe has worn thin for flirtation with liberal light ideas, which that was always my issue when I was working in the White House is oftentimes Republicans would be scared to say what we thought. We'd be scared to say like here are the you know problems with welfare or whatever. And instead we'd say, "Well, what about if we do the liberal position but just like a little bit less?" little less. And there was this fear, fear of of saying what you wanted to do because it just didn't sound very nice. And now I think that fear has dissipated a little bit, um, maybe because of Trump, but also because it's like we tried it your way. <laughs> and let's, now I'm going to say close the border. I'm just going to say it out loud. So um, I don't know. I think she's just the maybe the right candidate for the wrong time. And it, of course, would be weird if I didn't disagree with you fundamentally on the policy stuff and so forth. So, but but uh, leaving that aside, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about something I saw this week. The Wall Street Journal editorial board, after Iowa, the results were in. They urged DeSantis to drop out, saying he's got no clear path. He's you know well behind Haley, and he should basically give Haley a chance to take on Trump one-on-one. -on -one. And if you take a look, in fact, at the current polling numbers, if the Sanders drops out, that probably a certain amount of that support would go to Haley. 
And, and then you, you, you factor that in with the fact that something like 40% of New Hampshire's electorate are registered independents and they can vote in that Democrat, sorry, in that Republican primary. That would perhaps give Haley a chance to make a legitimate case that based on, like you said, not just a few thousand voters in Iowa, but actually a significant number of people that she is a real alternative. Uh, what do you think? Is Ron DeSantis, I mean, at some point, Ron DeSantis is going to get off because I think the journal's right. He's got no path to the nomination, but I, I would imagine his pride's going to prevent him from doing that for a while yet. What do you think? I would agree. I mean, and he's got money left to spend, but um, I think it's fundamentally wrong that DeSantis dropping out gives Haley a better shot. I think actually Nikki Haley needs Ron DeSantis to stay in because Ron DeSantis is uh, is a competitor to Donald Trump. So I think that DeSantis is taking away votes from Trump, people who liked a lot of the Trump policies, but wants somebody who, like DeSantis, uh, doesn't waver, actually is a anti-lockdown governor um, who doesn't say one thing and then do another. So I, I think that's the appeal of DeSantis. He actually do he doesn't just have the Twitter. He does the thing that Trump says on Twitter. So if DeSantis drops out, I see Trump as getting the vast majority of those votes and and Nikki Haley getting wiped out. Um, so I, I find it actually a little bit funny when Nikki Haley spends her advertising money uh, going after DeSantis because she she needs some spoiler basically there to soak up votes uh, from Trump. So. <laughs> Yes, DeSantis could drop out, but it's it, it it none of this has any effect on Nikki Haley being the nominee. Got it. Now, one other argument that the Journal's editorial board made, and it seems to me, based on the polling, to be a, a reasonable one, at least at this point, is that uh, the Republicans have a better shot with Haley. And you take a look at the polling numbers right now. Uh, national polling numbers have Haley easily defeating Biden and Trump just barely edging him. But of course, national numbers don't tell the story. You take a look at those six swing state, state polls and in almost every instance, Haley has a clear edge in a one-to-one -one matchup over Biden, much more so than Trump does. And I think that's what the Wall Street Journal and a lot of other sort of moderate Republicans are looking for. Uh, what do you think about the electability argument? So the electability argument used to be the biggest one. I mean, we are tired of losing. We lost in 2016. We lost in 2020. We didn't I mean, we did gain the House in 2022, but we have a one seat majority there and we, and we didn't win the Senate like this. I'm tired of losing thing, I think, was what really put DeSantis's numbers almost at 40, 45 percent polling right after the 2022 midterms. So electability was certainly front and center on Republicans minds. And it was one of Trump's biggest weaknesses. Um, and even for people, I think, who did feel as though the election was, in whatever sense, rigged, unfair, stolen, um, you know, Trump was the president who sat there and let it happen. Like, 
Trump's DHS was the one who was sitting out there censoring conservatives on Twitter. So I think there was a real uh, opportunity to make an electability argument. The problem, of course, is that Joe Biden is so unappetizing to the American people, his approval ratings hover near 30, that you can't make the electability argument. You just can't do it because any human being, like my dog, it seems like could beat <laughs> Joe Biden. So I, I, with no platform, with nothing, it just, it is it is not possible to make an electability argument against Joe Biden. Huh. Well, I, obviously I, I see things a little bit differently. I certain Joe Biden certainly would not be my number one choice as a Democrat, but I think, I feel fortunate in that if Joe Biden is to be reelected, I can't think of anyone other than Donald Trump who he might be able to beat. And so I am certainly, uh, even though I guess the downside risk I feel of a second Trump term is much greater, I think the, the chances of Biden winning are greater if he goes up against Trump than if he goes up against Nikki Haley. That's true. Um but I think two two points. One, I feel like Republicans felt like they tried that. We tried the electable person. We tried the Mitt Romney. We tried the John McCain, and it didn't work. So, so that and then we we like tried this psychopath, you know, in in many people's mind in 2016, and it did work. So, like recent experience does not confirm what uh, maybe common sense would tell you. Um, And then the other thing is, if you're somebody who what you want out of our federal government is a push against leftism, you look around you and you see um, everything from racial quotas to men are being allowed in girls' bathrooms. Like you just see in your own space things that you never thought you would see in your lifetime. You don't feel like Nikki Haley is going to do anything about that. And and so there's just, yes, she might be more electable, but for what? To gain what? To spend more money in Ukraine? Like what actually is... The benefit there, and I think conservatives don't. I, I it just it's not motivated. So, so you see, you see Haley, or maybe more importantly, you think the Republican electorate sees Haley as much more of a reluctant uh, cultural warrior, if you will, than say a Donald Trump. Right. It 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 seems to me that Nikki Haley wants to be invited to dinner parties, right? She wants to be on the board of Boeing. She wants to be accepted. There was a um a clip of her at a recent event where somebody asked, "Can a man become a woman?" And she said, "Well, I don't think that minors should be getting surgeries, but like I don't mind how you live your life." And I think that that answer might have been okay a little while ago, but I think that conservatives now are like, if a white person were to dress up and act like a black person, we would not accept that in society. Why is this different? And so for her to be scared to say, no, a man can't become a woman, like, no, no, she just won't say it. She can't say it. She won't say it. That to me is this sign that 
every single thing that she does is going to be similar, that it's going to be, well, what are people going to think of me if I say, well, it's just true. It just actually is true. So just be, you know, say the truth, but she can't do it because she is beholden to either whether it's a donor class or a desire to be liked or what have you that just uh, handicaps her from being the president that Republicans feel as though we need right now. All right. Well, uh, as I mentioned, New Hampshire coming up this uh, this coming week, and we will certainly be talking about the results there and the campaign going forward on next week's show. As we're moving on to an international politics story, I thought it would be a good idea to bring in someone who has real expertise in this area, and that's my fellow political scientist who also happens to be married to me, Kimberly Weir. Welcome, Kimberly. Hi. Nice to be here. I also appreciate the snow. <laughs> so uh, let me give some intro here. So U.S. forces this last week have continued strikes against Yemen's Houthi militia, which has been targeting shipping in the Red Sea. The Iranian-backed group has been launching missiles and drones at vessels in that vital shipping lane all the way since back since November. And as Houthi attacks ramped up early this year, the U.S. warned the Houthis that there would be serious repercussions if that activity didn't cease. But it was a warning that went unheeded, and it's resulted in recent U.S. and U.K. strikes against the group. Now, some people believe this may be playing right into the hands of the Houthis, who are hoping for an expanded regional war in the Middle East. And in fact, within hours of the initial U.S. and U.K. attacks, a senior Houthi leader called it the biggest folly in their history. Now, the Houthis have also launched mis multiple missiles towards Israel, most of which have been intercepted by Israel's air defense systems or U.S. ships in the Red Sea. On January 17th, the Biden administration redesignated the Houthis as a specially designated global terrorist or SDGT entity. And that's a designation that was put in place during the final weeks of the Trump administration, but removed at the beginning of Biden's presidency out of a concern that that designation might make it more difficult to provide humanitarian aid to Yemen. Now, the designation doesn't take an effect for 30 days in the probably forlorn hope that it will deter future Houthi attacks. The SGDT designation restricts access to funds from international markets, but I don't know that that's very meaningful for the Houthis. A more serious designation of forest terror Foreign Terrorist Organization, or FTO, a lot of acronyms here, which wasn't imposed, would have included a travel ban on Houthis attempting to enter the U.S., but again, I don't know how meaningful that would be as well. So. Kimberly, we'll start with you on this since you're our resident international politics, international relations expert. What's your take on what the Houthis are doing, why they're doing it, and uh, the response we've seen so far? I'll, I'll start by saying that, yes, we international relationist people, we love our acronyms. So <laughs> no shortage of those at any given time. Um, as far as I, I think it makes more sense to start with why the Houthis are attacking vessels. Um, I think they were inspired by two events, and this has been on my mind as I've been thinking about what they've been doing. One, I think that they saw that during the 2010s, the Somali pirates were really effective at crippling the shipping industry, and it ended up taking serious UN intervention to actually minimize that attack, those, are, those attacks, and get them under control. And second, 
I think that the humongous container ship that blocked the Suez Canal a few years ago, that they saw that this shut down the waterway. And I think it dawned on them, especially as they've been getting like much better military weaponry and drones and so forth from Iran, that they've got this great military capability. They can start bombing these ships, right? And I think it dawned on them that, hey, here's this way that we can draw more attention to our situation. And they know they control this choke point. And throughout history, countries have been, you know, throughout naval history, countries have been fighting to control, fighting for control for this this area. And they see that they're sitting on this, this choke point. And then the Gaza Strip situation happens and they say, hey, you know, we, we can pull this off as we're acting in solidarity with Palestine. And, you know, the thing that's interesting to me about that is that incidentally, the Palestinians are Sunni Muslim, not Shiite Muslim like the Houthis. So I think that factors into the situation. And I think that they look at the situation and say, here, here's our chance to say, oh, we're doing this in solidarity with the Palestinians. But I think their underlying objective is really that they're using this as an opportunity to solicit a response from the international community and a way to solidify their control of Yemen. Because basically, they're forcing the U.S. and the U.N. and even corporations like Maersk to react and this legitimizes their control since it forces governments to negotiate with them. Plus, they'd been out of the public eye for some time um, due to a peace deal that the UN had brokered. And I think that it's important to note that how the humanitarian crisis fits into this, because I think that um, a lot of people overlook the fact that it's largely the fault of the Houthis that the humanitarian crisis ended up happening to the extent that it has anyway. And this works to the advantage of the Houthis because the people who are in power get to control the humanitarian aid and they profit from the conflict. And so I think their ploy has worked and I think they're back in the limelight and they're getting even more support at home and they're continuing to get the support from Iran. So I think that they, they have definitely achieved their objective. Yeah, they're regarding to say that there, there, there's a there's a lot of moving a lot of moving pieces there, and and, and I want to uh, may I want to bring you in about the I think that gives us a good background as to some of the reasons the many reasons the Houthis are doing what they're doing. What do you think about the U.S. response? Has it been strong enough? Would you have liked to have seen the Biden administration doing more, or, or what's your view on that? Well, I do have some questions about, you know, during the Trump administration, they were both labeled a foreign terrorist organization and a specially designated global terrorist organization. And I think while those sound like messaging devices, um, they really do carry consequences, especially for people who provide material support to the Houthis. and. And yet, by only reimposing one, um, obviously there there is and there was during the Trump administration and there is currently a conversation about how do you not exacerbate the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. And I do not see uh, just putting one label on them as alleviating or somehow helping that. 
But I do actually see a messaging harm in addition to a practical harm, which is that it seems, you know, what's the plan? It, it, it seems like a, not a show of weakness, but certainly not a show of strength. And I think that that is perhaps what this administration has been facing since the pullout in Afghanistan. It's one of the reasons why there's support for um, uh, supporting Ukraine, which is that there has to be some U.S. show of strength so that you can deter China, so that uh, you can keep some stability in the Middle East. So, you know, I'm not a foreign uh, policy expert, so I'm not going to pretend to know the difference practically in what would happen if you redesignate them at SG, SDGT and not an FTO. And of course, this happened during the very end of the Trump administration. So it's not like we know what would have happened by keeping those labels on. My, I guess my fear is a few things. One, I know that it was a real conversation in in the Trump administration that that despite the humanitarian concerns that this did need to happen. Um, I haven't heard a, a solid explanation for why that was wrong. And I do have concerns of just general, um, and of course, this is, this is coming from the right too, but like a general uh, weakness on the world stage that has created an opening for a tremendous amount of chaos and we are like feeling and seeing that tremendous amount of chaos. So, you know, who knows? This all seems like sort of monopoly money. <laughs> like what, you know, it, it's like fake almost. You you don't you can't practically feel it the way that you can feel inflation. Um but yeah, but it, it just it doesn't feel powerful. Well I I I'd say that well, it's one thing to throw another designation of uh, acronyms against someone, but it's something entirely different and feels much more powerful to launch cruise missiles and, and, and other things against them. And that, that, that really is literal projection of power. And the U.S. has been doing a fair amount of that, although from a military standpoint, it's a difficult sort of thing because, of course, the, the Houthis are pretty battle-tested now. They've been fighting for nearly a decade now, and a lot of their launch platforms are are very mobile and, and difficult to hit. And so it's going to be quite a challenge for the U.S. and other allied forces to minimize that shipping threat to the extent that uh, Maersk and other companies are going to feel comfortable getting in there. So, Kimberly, I want to come back to you on this. you have any have any feel for how this might actually because I'm trying to get a sense of what exactly would incentivize the Houthis to stop doing this. Now, they're saying that they will stop as soon as Israel pulls out of Gaza. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. But what, what's your sense of that? I think that the Houthis, in saying that they're in solidarity with the Palestinians, um, you know, when those attacks stop, they, they are still better positioned than they were by not doing anything. Um, and I do think that there are a lot of moving parts here. I think that what's going to ultimately happen is it's going to be a lot like the, the situation reminds me of other places that the U.S. has done this sort of thing. 
like what happened in Lebanon with Hezbollah, right? Who now basically runs and control Lebanon. Um, and the same with the Taliban, as May had mentioned with Afghanistan, you know, how, how the Taliban morphed from a terrorist organization to legitimately now running Afghanistan. And I think the big difference is that Afghanistan is in the middle of nowhere, while Yemen sits on a major international shipping lane. And I think that this ties back to the proxy war that's going on between Saudi Arabia and Iran in the area over Yemen, with Yemen having a very large, you know, southern border of Saudi Arabia. Uh, this obviously matters to them. And so they, the Houthis over time have really increased their power within their country. They've increased their domestic appeal. They have a lot more domestic support with this whole call uh, to help the Palestinians. Apparently, their popularity numbers have increased, and this has increased their recruiting at home. And and the one thing I think it's important to keep in mind too is that that as Michael, you had mentioned, I mean, this has been decades that Yemen has the the Houthis been in control in Yemen and fighting and controlling larger and larger swaths of the country. And there are people who are 20 years old who have never known anything other than conflict. And so to them, this is sort of like a, this is how life is. And I think they're just going to continue to endure this. Um, And I think the Houthis are just going to end up taking over. And again, like I said, I think this that this situation forces other international entities to negotiate with them, which just solidifies their position. It, I guess to the surprise of nobody, uh, the Middle East is a is a mess. It has been for a long time, and it doesn't look like that's going to change anytime soon. And so I, I am sure we will come back to this in the future. And But for now, Kimberly, thanks so much for joining us for this segment. Sure. It was nice to be here. You know, when Mike Johnson became Speaker of the House, and that was just over three months ago now, he promised an end to continuing resolutions, but it was not a promise he was able to deliver on because, of course, on Thursday of this week, Congress passed another continuing resolution that extends the government's funding until early March. And it passed with large majorities in both chambers, 77 to 18 in the Senate, 314 to 108 in the House. But I should point out that in the House, Johnson was barely able to get a majority of his caucus. There were 107 House Republicans for it, 106 in opposition. And so Democrats provided that supermajority that was first needed to suspend the rules to move the CR to a vote and then to pass it. And this legislation essentially mirrors the agreement President Biden reached with uh, Johnson's predecessor, Kevin McCarthy. It increases total spending this fiscal year by $28 billion. It boosts defense spending by 3% over last year and holds non-defense spending flat. And that allows defense spending to more or less keep pace with inflation, but represents a cut in real terms for non-defense spending. And now, Congress has six weeks of breathing space, more or less, to work out the details of the $1.6 trillion spending agreement that they couldn't close the deal on this last week. Though, given what we've seen in the past, uh, there's sure no guarantee that it will end up getting through the House in particular. And because we've seen conservative opposition being really strong, the House Freedom Caucus called the CR extension, for instance, a total failure. And they they did what they could to try to push through some 
extra things on this CR, like uh, they uh, tried to attach the House's previously approved HR2 border bill to the CR, which would have pretty much guaranteed a shutdown because it wouldn't have passed the Senate. But Freedom Caucus members were clearly not responsive to that uh, argument. Uh, one of them, Eli Crane, said, you know, our speaker, Mr. Johnson, said he was the most conservative speaker we've ever had. And yet here we are putting this bill on the floor this afternoon without conservative policy riders. Talk is cheap. The American people deserve better. But in the end, Johnson bowed to what I'd call the political and, well, I guess, numerical realities. He told reporters at one point, hey, we're not going to get everything that we want, but we're going to stick to our core conservative principles. We're going to advance fiscal stewardship. So, May, uh, what do you think about this CR and also the likelihood of an actual budget in no oh, about a month and a half from now? Um, I have no confidence in anything. Congress <laughs> or um, so it is inevitable that there was going to be CRs for so many reasons. As you said, there is a numerical reality. Republicans control they have a one seat majority. So they control one half of one third of the government. Like you're going, you can only push so far. Um, and, and, and yet uh, I think, I have this, I'm torn because Democrats and and both parties really have used the budget as a weapon to get policies passed, including Obamacare. Um, And so that, that is the current status quo. And for Republicans to just unilaterally disarm and say, I know that everybody else does it, but we're just going to focus on the budget and we're not going to attach any of our policies and we're not going to try and, and protect the border. I, I It's hard for a lot of people to stomach. So on on one hand, like the Republicans, I feel like the at least the Freedom Caucus are dealing in the world of reality where this is what you do if you're ever going to get a policy through. You just you have to do it here. There, there's no other opportunity. But on the other hand, wouldn't it be nice if we went back to a, a, fa- a fantasy world, a world that doesn't exist, where the budget really is just about the budget and we can get serious about spending cuts. But from the, you know, average Joe perspective out here, you just see the government continuing to spend exorbitant sums of money, and it almost seems like no one cares so long as they get their policy preference passed. And that's super frustrating because it it, it just cannot be the case that our country racks up continual trillions of debt every year with no consequence. Yeah, and, and I I understand that argument. I, I don't agree agree with that argument in certain respects. But if you take a look at the CR, it certainly doesn't really increase spending a a ton. And 
I could see someone making the argument. I think Johnson, in fact, put forward the argument that, listen, all this is true. I'm a real conservative. But you have to understand that if there is a shutdown, it's going to look like we're the ones who instigated this shutdown. And it's going to it's going to reflect poorly on us. That's a that's an argument Jay makes all the time saying shutdowns always hurt Republicans more than Democrats. And you can also say, and if you just hold on for a little bit, hold on for a year, we're going to elect a, a, a demo, sorry, a Republican president. We're going to have the majority in the Senate and hopefully we'll be able to have a majority in the House. We'll have the trifecta. It's going to put us in a much better position. But you're jeopardizing all of that by taking this particularly hard and intransigent line right now. What do you think about that argument? Yeah, I I used to be a don't be crazy. Um, let's just win the House and the Senate and the presidency. So let's do everything we can to not be crazy so that we can do that. And then once we have that, then the world will be a magical place. And yet I remember 2016 through 2018 where the world was that magical place. We had the presidency, we had the House, we had the Senate, and what we passed was a tax cut. And I do think that it was a good tax cut. Like, I think it helped a lot of people. And of course, it's all expiring now. But um, it, it just didn't, it didn't ring true. And it doesn't ring true to people that if you just wait and don't be crazy, then you'll get what you want. So unfortunately, Republicans had two years to make their case that waiting was the right thing. And we just didn't. So I'm, I'm, I every year I get a little bit more like just be crazy, just just do it, just try and get what you want. Because honestly, if you don't fight for what you want and, oh, my gosh, it's a government shutdown. It's not the end of the world. Like, it, it truly is not. Everyone gets back paid. And um, the 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 big thing, the, the parks shut down. Like, it's the middle of winter. Who's going to the parks right now anyway? So it's not that big of a deal. And, yes, it is harmful messaging-wise. But if you're still fairly far away from the primaries, I mean, we're very far away from November. This is the time to do it. You don't want to do it when you're in September. So uh, I don't know. Maybe we should just be crazy. I, I, I understand that argument, but then I'm trying to I'm trying to sketch out sort of a best case scenario for the Freedom Caucus, uh, you know, cut cut budget sort of folks. And it seems to me, OK, let's say. Let's say that they push and there's a government shutdown uh, because this, you know, this policy riders were put in there that that aren't going to go anywhere in the Senate. Then I guess the cal the calculus is that the shutdown puts more pressure on the moderates and also the White House, which would have to sign off on this to cave in on H.R. 2 than it would on Johnson to work with Democrats to pass a to pass a budget. And so I understand, I guess, from the from the Freedom Caucus perspective and, and the argument you make to get crazy thing. But I just don't see how that would end up getting them what they want. And if crazy doesn't get you what you want, then is it just crazy for the sake of, I don't know, being crazy? And I, I guess, you know, thought experiment, if 
ABC News, if MSNBC, if CNN, if everybody really did want HR2. I mean, they found that these uh, policies, maybe maybe with some modifications, but in general, the bar for asylum should be raised, that you should be required to seek asylum in a safe country that you're transiting to, like that really the media was behind this policy push. Would it happen? Could it happen? And to me, the answer to that is yes. So there's this huge frustration that um, maybe you're right. Maybe in, in the world we live in, we would not be able to get HR2 passed. Um, and so there's really no point. But imagine this other world where we had the entire media pushing for what we were asking for, and and then we would, I think, be able to get it passed. And, th- and that is the frustrating part, because it's like, for Republicans, you see, uh, this is something that's so popular. And and sure, maybe there are, are some modifications that, that could be made, but but I think that there is a general agreement among the American public that the people who are coming in right now and who are staying here and who are not going to their court dates and who are not being removed from the United States, they're not asylum seekers. They are economic migrants. And there needs to be something done about that. I think the American public agrees with that. And I think that the American public would push and be happy with those changes, uh, whether it's through a budget or any other vehicle. And yet you just can't break through. You cannot break through. And um, and that to me is the frustrating part. So you're probably right. We probably uh, won't get the policies that we want attached to this budget. But uh, the reason for that is so frustrating that it's hard to stomach. Yeah, I get it because I, I see things uh, a bit differently, more than a bit differently in HR too. But I think both sides we tend to we tend to think that oftentimes the big problem is our messaging and our breaking through and our policies are certainly popular if they can just get through. In in the case of conservatives, the liberal biased uh, mainstream media, or in the case of uh, liberals, different issues. But uh, obviously, I would disagree with that with that policy. But I think in the world we live in right now, I I find it hard to see anything that's very strongly based on HR2 moving anywhere before this year is out. And I wanted to kind of maybe segue from that into uh, uh, a little more on immigration and as well as Ukraine, because they're also often linked these days. And listeners, you might recall that when we made our 2024 predictions uh, a few weeks ago, Jay said he'd believe that there'd be some sort of deal coming out of Congress in this coming year on immigration and Ukraine aid linking them. And I said, I don't think that's going to happen in either case. And this week, uh, Speaker Johnson reportedly told the House Republican caucus that there won't be a border deal until there's a Republican in the White House. But then you look on the Senate side and you have Mitch McConnell saying just the opposite, that if Trump is in the White House, that's going to effectively kill any prospects for an immigration plan that could get the votes in the Senate. And so the time to act if we're going to act on immigration is now. And Johnson, of course, has pushed the Senate to pass H.R. 2. And we just talked that's not going to happen in the Senate as it's currently constituted. Uh, but also Johnson's made it clear that we're not going to consider 
any more Ukraine aid without tying it to immigration. And in a way, I, I have a, at least a little bit of sympathy for Mike Johnson because he's in a tight spot, right? His, his hold on to speakership, uh, tenuous at best. He's got that razor thin majority you mentioned, May. Uh, the right flank is very activist. He has to kind of deal with that. And then all of this comes in the context of, of Joe Biden trying to work out some kind of deal. This last week, he brought together congressional leadership from both parties to try to revive that plan he put forward uh, a while ago for $110 billion in aid, and that would be uh, $60 billion for Ukraine, $14.5 billion for Israel, and $14 billion for various border security measures. And the larger context here, at least on Ukraine, is that Ukrainian forces are running low on supplies. They're implementing munition rationing. And there are some estimates that a Rus Russian forces are firing munitions at something like five to seven times more than what Ukraine can do with some U.S. military officials saying without additional U.S. funding, Ukraine could suffer significant setbacks or even defeat by this summer. So there's a lot going on here, whether we look at the immigration or the Ukraine part. I'll let you grab this from whatever end you want me. So I tend to agree with you that there's not going to be a deal. Um, you know, a lot of Republicans, I, I don't know if they don't want to give money to Ukraine but they don't want to give it to them in the way that it's currently constituted, which is I do not see the end goal. Like, tell me where this money fits into a broader strategy in a way that I can tell my constituents, because right now all my constituents see is money going out and a stalemate perpetuating. And that's just hard to sell, especially when you feel like there's just not enough bullets to go around as the world is slowly lighting on fire. So Republicans just can't sell uh, Ukraine spending. And so I think that it's right. There has to be a give that you can sell to your constituents. The problem is the problem with the border does not feel to be legislative. Having worked in the White House, I can say that a legislative fix would be great. I would love a legislative fix. That said, it's not strictly necessary. We had a border crisis in 2019, ton of children coming over, as you can remember, kids in cages, this whole thing. And we were able to implement administrative policies um, that like pre-COVID, so not Title 42, including Remain in Mexico, that were able to to like significantly limit the numbers, and and so it's hard to sell Republicans on. Well, we really need this legislative fix when they just remember a few years ago when you did not need a legislative fix. So the I, I just think the sell for Republicans to their constituents is way too hard. And and I, I don't see this deal coming together. Yeah, and I recall uh, a few weeks, uh, a while ago when Jay and I were talking about immigration, it seems to me that you can make a case that in existing law, there actually is uh, authority for the president to, in effect, shut the border for national security reasons without any sort of additional legislative action. And now, of course, that would be challenged in court because everything is. But I think there's a reasonable case 
to be made for that, regardless of what you might think about it as a uh, whether or not it's a good or bad policy. I think the authority uh, uh, might actually exist. Yeah. Um, I having dealt with immigration for more hours than <laughs> I can count. Um, you know, there's splits in the Republican Party. There are splits about, you know, if you're going to have a give on this, whether that includes more guest workers, whether that doesn't. I mean, it just it's so tremendously complicated that I do think that an administrative Band-Aid until um, just to get the, the crisis under control is is the only path forward. So then you don't really you don't really buy Mitch McConnell's argument, because if 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 the argument is that, well, you can do a lot of this through executive executive authority, then McConnell's argument kind of falls apart, I guess, at least to a certain extent. Yes. And like I said, I do think that there is room for legislation here. I think the asylum standard should be changed. There were a lot of executive orders that we tried to do um, and administrative rules in the Trump administration that were challenged um, that you could certainly do through legislation, including whether you need to seek asylum elsewhere before coming into the U.S. So there's room for legislation. The problem, of course, is I do not see, I think border security should be entirely separate from immigration. Immigration is a question of how many people should come here legally? What should those people be? Should they be educated? Should they be not educated? Should they be family members? Should they be workers? Immigration is its own thing. And border security is its own thing. And yet everyone is obsessed with tying those two things together. And I think that we should just think of them as unrelated. But because we cannot, and every time you start talking about border security, all of a sudden now you're talking about amnesty and you're talking about guest workers and you're talking about immigration. Um, because people cannot stop themselves from tying those things together, th you cannot have a divided Congress. Like you just have to have a united Congress that just thinks about border security or just thinks about immigration. And any attempt to try and link the two will fail. So on the Ukraine piece of things, I think you can make an argument. I don't know if I believe it, but that if things get dire enough for Ukraine, Russia starts making significant advances, Ukraine runs even lower on munitions, that maybe that will pressure enough people in Congress to uh, to authorize some sort of supplemental for the rest of 2024, uh, even even over the objections of maybe some of the Freedom Caucus folks. Do you think that that's a realistic scenario or are you kind of like me in this regard? I find it difficult to see a scenario in which this Congress, well, at least the House, approves any additional Ukraine funding in uh, before the uh, before fe February, I guess, of 2025. So for the next year. I don't I don't think that that's the case. For one, I just don't see that it's going to happen. This is a true stalemate. Russia did not have the gains that it thought it was going to have. Uh, the Ukrainians were able to push back like and this all happened really before a tremendous amount of U.S. support like this. It, it doesn't seem like the U.S. support has helped the Ukrainians 
win anything. And so if, if that's not how it feels, then as, you know, our bullets start running low, it just, it doesn't, it, it, it feels like the stalemate is going to, to continue to exist. I just think the American people are, as they see the Ukrainians say, we can't afford this anymore, that it feels like, okay, well, maybe it's time to stop being at war and find some sort of deal. And deals are bad in the sense that they require some amount of compromise. But that that's that's the essence of a foreign policy. Like it's it's not unless you're just gonna go bomb everyone and and take over the world, like there will be some amount of give. And it's not ideal and it's not appetizing, but it has to be that way. And I just think the Republicans, as it seems like Ukraine becomes more needy, will say, well, you guys say that the the problem is that Russia is going to take over Europe. That's that is the assertion that if uh you know, if you don't get US supplies, then Russia's gonna take over Europe. Then where is Europe? Then where is Europe? I just I don't think that Republicans are going to say, aha, well, that that means we must give you bazillion dollars. It, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, I, I, of course, see things uh, differently. And partly that's maybe my old cold warrior-ness. But uh, I, I don't think the argument so much that Russia is going to take over Europe. At least that's not something I've heard. Certainly Russia may take over Ukraine. And I have great concerns about allowing that sort of just unchecked aggression to go unanswered, especially given the fact that China, I think, is looking very closely at this. And uh, uh, you can make an argument that, hey, uh, after they saw how we cut and ran in Afghanistan and the disastrous results there, now if we cut and run again in Ukraine, I think China has a reason to think, you know what, are they really going to are they really going to do anything if we uh, push into Taiwan? Um, maybe not. I I don't think it's a gazillion dollars. I think it's a, a small amount, all things uh, considered. And I just hope that Ukraine will be able to cobble together enough support from other sources uh, in Europe and around the world to last until what I hope is a more favorable environment for more supplemental funding to Ukraine in early 2025. But we shall see about that. One final thing before, before we get off this, before we close. Uh, I'm wondering, May, you know, I said I, I feel almost a little sympathetic for Mike Johnson, but in a way I don't because he knew what he was getting into. So, you know, uh, but do you think he ends up holding on to the, the, the speaker gavel for the rest of uh, for the rest of the year? Or is he going to he going to be because there already been some Freedom Caucus people saying, listen, he's 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 lied to us, too. He's not delivering. And, hey, we're we're happy to boot him, too. Um, I think he definitely faces a vote. Um, you know, he doesn't have, for whatever reason, just the the long standing animosity that people have had to that people had toward Kevin McCarthy, people like Nancy Mays or whatever that are just personal for them. Tim Burchett, so. He definitely faces a vote, and my guess is actually that he survives the vote. 
Well, I can't I can't imagine that there would be the stomach to try to find anyone else because it's basically a suicide mission, I, I think, at this point, given the numbers. So I, I'm, I'm going to agree with you on that. I think that I don't know if there can be a vote or not, but I think that that uh, Mike Johnson remains speaker for the rest of the year. So we'll, we'll see about that. Hey, and. One more thing before we end this episode. Uh, election season, of course, has now officially kicked off. And may I don't know about you, but has your phone started to blow up with uh, texts and appeals and all this kind of stuff for uh, give us money or else sort of thing? So it has been going on for a long time because I... I don't know, maybe I'm a Republican primary voter yeah, in the Senate. Um, or, or so I actually think if anything, it's, it's almost lightened up, but I will say one funny story, which is I'm so used to getting text messages of, Hey, this is Bernie Marino. Please, you know, support me. And then one time Bernie Marino actually did text me. <laughs> Hi, this is Bernie Marino. Like, and, and it was such a, specific text because it referenced people that we we knew it it talked about you know his daughter who i know and and i was like this is very strange (laughs) very weird the messaging is getting great yeah (laughs) very very focused (laughs) and i kind of let it sit for almost you know several hours and i was like i think that this is a real text yeah wow so yeah that uh you know these the spam it'll it's it can prevent you from actually responding yeah. to real text. I mean, I've been getting so much from my good friends uh, Joe and Kamala you know, all the time. But but I mean, a couple of days ago, I got I got a, one of these calls, and I almost felt bad for the person because she was clearly reading a script and and not really reading it very well, actually. And for me, because I've donated both to Republicans and Democrats, and I, I subscribe to right and left-wing publications, I, I tend to get it oftentimes from both sides. So it's like it doubles my doubles my discomfort, I guess, on this. But, you know, the script is, it seems like it's always the same, right? The country's going to hell. This election means everything. We're at a precipice. We're facing just utter destruction. Will you give us $200 or or when I say no, well, you give us $100. It's really just something. And I, I, so I don't know about you, but when I hear those kind of things, it actually makes me less likely to support a candidate or a cause that I might even otherwise be inclined to support. I, I don't know. I feel like I'm being emotionally manipulated, you know, but I don't know. But that, that maybe that's just me. Well, unfortunately, you are in the minority because as annoying as you or I might find these things, they are very effective. In fact, they're right. So there are even um, investigations going on against both Act Blue and Win Red about elder fraud people who um, sign up for some of these things. They sign up for reoccurring donations and people, even though it's not elder fraud, it is just effective. So you yeah they wouldn't be sending these to you if they weren't effective and so it's it's problematic because it is so annoying but um some people love it and and i think especially act blue has really if you look at the fec records 
people who just are repeat $5 givers, they'll give $5 to 20 causes a day. And all of a sudden, over the course of a year, they've given $50,000, $75,000. And of course, like if you're old and you're on a fixed income, you probably have it. You you, you probably have it saved um, somewhere. So you, you don't notice it immediately, but it is pretty problematic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember my, uh, my mom who, who died in, in uh, a few years ago, but she was a big, uh, a big conservative cause a supporter. There wasn't a conservative cause that she didn't support practically. And some of the things that she got I, toward the end, she had uh, dementia for the last few years. I really had to watch out very carefully on her mail and, and email and all that, because some of those things were just so, and like you said, it's, it's on both sides and, and it, it frustrates me because you know I, I these and I get you're right appeals to anger and fear are are what sell and it, it just it I guess it's just a deeper I see a deeper problem with our politics and of course that's you know I think what why we do what we do. I'd like to think that we try to appeal to uh, what Lincoln called, was it, the, the better angels of our nature. And I think I'm, I'm thinking about Lincoln because I just started that John Meacham biography of him, which is which is really good. You know, it's like, but but that is never going to be the truly popular, the big message, right? As, as opposed to those kind of just crazy, the world's going to end thing. And and I guess that kind of gets into why we do this and why, you know, it's it's always going to be a struggle for us to compete with the the Pod Save Americas or the Bannon, Bannon's War Rooms of the world. And that's also why I really appreciate our, our listeners, because you guys, if you're listening to this now, you're the reason we can do this. We can't. Uh, I mean, ad revenue goes to the, those crazy hyperpartisan things for the most part. So thank you for supporting us. I mean, this is going to be a big year. It's not going to be the end of the world, whether Donald Trump or Joe Biden wins, but you know, it is a, a big year. And so this year, uh, especially, we really thank you if you're a supporter and if you're not a supporter, you know, I, I hope you'll consider becoming one. And, and you know, the deal, you can go to uh, politicsguyscom slash support for all of those options. There's the Patreon thing, or, you know, sometimes people like uh, continuing kind of thing. I can't afford that or it's too much. There are the one-time donation things you can do on Venmo, Venmo or PayPal. And, and again, you can always find that uh, in our show notes or was it politicsguyscom slash support. So thank you so much for that. We really do appreciate your help, which really is just vital in allowing us to get our message out, which we think is, I think, a message that there needs to be more of in this kind of crazy world of American politics. And as always, we want to close with a very special thanks to our executive, our executive producers, a great bunch, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.